Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just spoke with John DeMoya, all the way from Singapore, who joined me on an early Saturday morning, so thanks very much to him, about his new book, Reconstructing Bodies, Biomedicine, Health, and Nation Building in South Korea Since 1945. This came out in 2013 with Stanford University Press. This is a book that's really fascinating. It blends together as part of the same story the co-construction and the cohabitation of the emergence of biomedicine within a very hybrid context and the the emergence of the state in South Korea after 1945. John emphasizes in this book an account that blends both rupture and continuity in the narrative. So he's both taking into account the new elements of the cultures of health and healing and politics and culture in the state that came with the break um, that that was occasioned by U.S. occupation of South Korea, while also showing us the continuities, um, the kinds of antecedents that some of these biomedical practices were based on, um, and the ways that sort of these continuities actually bleed into the future as well, or rather the future relative to the way that the story is situated. It's a really interesting book, and you'll see over the course of our conversation that it's full of really fascinating anecdotes, um, really amusing, but also very empathetically wrought anecdotes. This book manages to do something very, very difficult, which is to, at the same time, provide an account of the material technologies of the transformation of a medical culture, a health culture of bodies, showing the sort of large-scale material, infrastructural, but also conceptual transformations that were occasioned by political transformation and that helped inform political transformation in a nation, while at the same time offering very empathetic pictures of the people, the individuals, the actors, the human beings that were involved in the story, and sometimes very funny anecdotes as well. So it was really a pleasure to talk with him. Um, One thing that you'll notice late in the interview is that there were occasionally, you may not hear direct evidence of them, but you'll hear indirect evidence of them, a couple of um, air conditioner technicians that were present in John's home to repair the air conditioning while we were talking. So you'll hear a little bit of that. You'll hear them kind of come into the story and then go back out of the story. And so it was a group effort today. All of us participated in this interview, um, and I hope that you will join us in that group and enjoy a conversation that I certainly enjoyed. It really was a pleasure. We're here today to talk with John DeMoya about his new book, Reconstructing Bodies, Biomedicine, Health, and Nation Building in South Korea Since 1945. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, John, and also New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, because this book very comfortably fits within both of these rubrics. And thanks so much for making time to talk with me all the way from Singapore. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Carla, and it's wonderful to be here, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk and uh, introduce uh, whatever I can about the book. Oh, of course. Thank you. So 
as is traditional on these channels, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to the history of science and technology and medicine, and specifically to looking at these issues in the context of South Korea? Sure. Um, I guess I'll try to give that answer both in personal terms and then obviously more in you know more traditional academic terms. Um, personally, years ago, I mean, well, yeah, uh, in the mid nineteen nineties, um, coming off of an undergraduate degree in English, I ended up. Uh, for like a lot of people just deciding to go overseas and teaching English. And I taught both in Korea and Japan, uh, 95, 96. And um, basically had no knowledge of the region, no knowledge of uh, anything other than this was an opportunity and just basically fell in love with Korea uh, at a moment that I now realize was just post-democratization, um, rapid uh, economic growth. Um, the key word that was mobilized everywhere was segewa, which is the Korean for globalization, and got really interested in like why there were so many Americans in the play in Seoul, uh, why there were so many GIs, um, why this was a place that seemed to be like, you know, that it was never on my radar as an American who had never lived abroad, but was suddenly seen to be taking off. So that's like the, the casual personal interest uh, end of it. And basically... See, that was 95, 96. I went abroad for what I thought was six months. And then some people have said I've never really come home, so to speak. <laughs> um, academically, it took a while to figure out how to translate that into a project. Um, because I was still, honestly, until the late 90s, saw myself as a lit person. And I actually did a master's, started a PhD program, dropped out of the PhD program. Uh, so I finally discovered history of science almost by accident in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and actually, my interest at that point was still more um, the, from the American side. Um, I was really interested in the role of American education and psychology post-war uh, in both Korea and Japan and had not made a decision. And um, when I got into Princeton in early 2000s, um, it was Ben Elman who basically really encouraged me to um, not think of myself as an East Asianist. And I don't, I don't think I am a pure East Asianist. I'm way too hybrid for that. But he pushed me to pick up a language, um, work with it, and try to handle um, you know what I call crudely both sides of the story as much as possible. And that was probably 2001, 2002, 2003, sort of the critical reshaping of that personal interest into something that could actually be a plausible uh, academic project, which oddly enough has resulted in one book and possibly possibly a second or third project. So yeah, um, it was both, yeah, I was teaching English, falling in love with the place, and then um, the, the weird kind of uh, set of uh, eclectic interests that Princeton was nice enough to allow me to um, assemble. And Oddly enough, they did kind of get on board with this project that I realize now if I were to advise this, I would be like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And, and big shout out to Ben Elman. I sure, exa exactly. No, he, he, yeah. he's clearly the formative influence. And he's, he's been formative for so much of this generation of scholars who are studying this confluence of history of science, medicine, and technology and East Asia in some way. So sure. mad props to Ben yeah. Elman. <laughs> so, Don... The book that we're looking at looks at the confluence between biomedicine, bodies, and the nation in South Korea from the last half of the 20th century and up to very recently. And we'll talk about the specifics of this story um, over the course of the ensuing conversation. Sure. How did you come to focus on this particular topic for your work, um, ultimately as a dissertation, and then um, that you know formed the seed of the book that we're talking about today? Sure, absolutely. Um I think the easiest way to put that is to kind of situate it in terms of um, the context in which I was doing dissertation research in Seoul. Um, obviously, 
Yeah, and I actually have a story that kind of I think will kind of um, cement some of that. Um, I knew that I was going to be doing a project on some aspect of the relationship between Korea and America that broadly construed, and um, I was able to set it up and go overseas in my beginning of my fourth year of uh, uh, this, um, which would have been 2004-2005. And I was at Seoul National University. Um, which, uh, you know, I don't know people's familiarity, but it's the major Korean university, but it has a Japanese colonial uh, roots just as uh, the major Taiwanese uh, university uh, does. Um, When I was there earlier, someone had told me a really interesting story. Um, This is actually a colleague who's at KAIST now, uh, Dr. Cheon Kim. And years ago, this is probably 2002 when I was passing through, um, trying to set up 2004, he'd said to me something about, you know, there were riots on this campus. And I was like, now, could you talk a little bit about that? He just said like student activism and he just gave me like a 30 second version of Korean students in the mid 1940s on their particular campus um, being very upset about the way the campus was being reshaped, uh, settled, handled and um, not much more than that. And I just, just kind of put a kind of put a little spark in the back of my mind. Like it's kind of interesting that the Koreans would be upset about the formation of their national university in 1946. So that was my um, kind of uh, um, rough, rough start when I got to Seoul in 2004, like kind of what was going on in 46. And it's actually not as much in the book as I'd like, but what, it, what that spark is and was, was that this was in essence the Japanese Imperial University and other affiliated institutions being reconstituted, reshaped, reformulated by the American military occupation as a Korean National University. And not surprisingly, this upset um, all stripes of uh, the Korean ideological spectrum, depending on for, for, for a wide variety of reasons. So that's sort of the broader context. I mean, I got really interested in this, like this, you know, because I had assumed that Koreans and Americans always got along and that sort of sort of the friendly, mashed stereotypical relationship, um, the, the Han Mi Hyop Cho, the Korean-American friendship relationship. Um, medicine specifically, then, uh, I guess, would go even more to being at Seoul National University, being interested in that broad context, and then being able to uh, have access to the hospital facilities. Um, I should give thanks here to Kim Ok-ju at Seoul National University. And specifically, I was able to meet someone, um, Dr. Kim Won-gon at Seoul National University, who is a professional cardiologist, amateur historian. And it's kind of hard to explain how we got to this, but I eventually got interested, and this is what now forms Chapter 3, I got very interested in cardiac surgery specifically as one of the major things that the Americans were trying to um, uh, use as part of their program of technology transfer after the Korean War. And that particular relationship with him and that particular chapter probably became the earliest thing that I wrote um, as early as 2004, 2005, that I really felt, look, like I'm not getting this correct yet, but there's like something here that's interesting. Um, The fact that University of Minnesota is doing the world's really cutting-edge cardi- uh, cutting open-heart surgery in Minnesota, 55, 56, and they're teaching it to uh, a developing country really, really early, 58, 59. So, that, I mean, that chapter and that particular story being at Seoul National, just pure luck. And I should where, where Kim Wong-gan was really valuable was he had all of the personal letters, photographs, and documents uh, on the Korean side of the particular surgeons that I was interested in, um, which was pure, you know how this works. It's pure luck, nothing in the archives, nothing anywhere. And then when I met him, he was like, oh yeah, because like he'd written about it. He's like, oh yeah, I happen to like have collected his family papers. I've got them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's fabulous. 
Yeah, and that's yeah. a great chapter. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting into that chapter too. Sure, sure, sure. So, John, you've mentioned that this started out as graduate as a graduate work as part of a yes. dissertation. Yes. In the, in the transition from dissertation to making it into a book, were there any major transformations along the way, um, or any major surprises? Can you talk a little bit about that process for you? Sure. Um, let me think in terms of transformation. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer both of those things. Um, major transformation was that, um, and I can, you know, as most dissertations go, um, they're, they're not, they're, you, our advisors tell us write a 300 page book. You should be thinking of the book from the get go. And of course I ignored this advice. <laughs> um, much, much to my own debit. Um, I wrote a unwieldy, six chapter, 550, 600 page dissertation wow. that had to be, yeah, that had to be turned, <laughs> that had to be turned into something far more coherent slash marketable slash, uh, accessible. Um, so I ended up going with, in essence, um, to give you the, the quick version of the transformation, what is now six chapters in, uh, the published version of the book is really only the first two chapters of the, of the dissertation. Um, with a lot of unpacking going on, um, particularly in the second half of the book, uh, where I get into the state and the large state-led campaigns. Much of that was was added on and written um, post-2008, after the move to Singapore. Um, so, that, yeah, so the first thing, the transformation was I had, I had to, like, um, break apart basically two, two and a half chapters and make one much more uh, specific, highly focused project out of it. Um, in terms of uh, other transformations then, and I, I, this is a nice way of um, hinting ahead, um, I, I originally went 45 through 75. Um, that was the book proposal from 2008, 2009. And every single editor I talked to said to me, you have to talk about present day Korea. You have to talk about, you know, the, the, the sort of popular culture, plastic surgery, things like that, that are out there discursively. And so that's what ultimately led me to write chapter six. What's now chapter six is that people basically forced me to do it and it was the right move. I just could not see that. Um, so that's also part of the transformation, you know, not only unpacking a lot of the stuff that was implicit, but then trying to make it much more contemporary, much more relevant. Um, and I guess that leads me then I can, I can also mention like the surprises, the surprises that, um, it's been a pleasant surprise so far. I mean, in that I, I wrote this largely for historians of medicine first, historians of Korea second, because I had to make that a conscious choice. I mean, I had to think about it, and it was impossible to do both equally. Um, but but the single strongest reaction I've had so far has been from medical anthropologists and medical sociologists, um, which is not that different from history of medicine. But nonetheless, it's, it's just surprised me in that most of the uh, little trickle of email I've gotten or people that come up to me at conferences tend to be um, people have no, you know, no particular knowledge about Asia per se, but right are interested in common issues and common themes of um, bodies, uh, interventions, uh, practices across, broadly speaking, uh, developing contexts all throughout the mid twentieth to mid twentieth century to the present. Um, I just had not expected that. And it's been very interesting talking to people about countries that I never would have thought of in terms of Korea developmentally, um, having some some analogies there. So as we get into the book itself, sure. This is um, so the book opens with an introduction that sets up the context and the background for a series of six case studies that are going to follow. Sure. The you open the introduction, which is subtitled "Medicine as a Form of Ordinary Shopping." Sure. Um, with a kind of, or at least early on, is a kind of anecdote that I think leads us really nicely into the kind of opening part of this story. 
So the medical pluralism of South Korea in the middle of the 20th century is very much a theme that runs through this early part of the book. And you quote a doctor here who says the attitude towards choosing healers is not distinct from that of ordinary shopping. It's a very evocative kind of a quote, and it really puts um, into the reader's mind the importance of the hybridity and the choice and the multivocal context of the medical marketplace in this context. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about that. What was, so prior to, or maybe at the point of the advent of American occupation in Korea, what was the local medical marketplace in South Korea like um, before and perhaps, you know, during this introduction of biomedicine? What was, what did the consumer um, have a choice to choose among? Or what did, what was the consumer choosing among when they were shopping for healers in this context? Sure. Um any of a wide variety of traditional practices, and I'll try, uh, were available to people, and I'll try to explain about that. And I'll also say that, I mean, this is, this is the subject of a huge body of growing research that people who primarily work on the colonial period in Korea work on. Um, I'll, I'll set it up in terms of what I was trying to write against, and then I'll explain, like, where the quote comes from, and I'll, then I'll address your question. Um, there was a stereotype, at least, that was given to me, and I don't know if it's still out there, but that, you know, Japanese colonialism, well, first of all, missionaries introduced Western medicine to Korea, at least in the late 19th century. Then Japanese colonialism between 1910 and 1945 very thoroughly introduces the Japanese version of biomedicine. The version I got when I first came to this was that the Japanese introduced kind of, you know, a kind of vaguely, thoroughly, totally overwhelming Foucauldian kind of biomedicine that polices Koreans' bodies. And I obviously, like 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 most historians, you know, was a little bit suspicious of this and wanted to look at what's um, under the surface of that. And I don't go heavily into that because I start in 45, but nonetheless, you start digging a little bit and you realize that, let's see, you've got... Um, Okay, things that I don't even go into, but you've got shamans, you've got all kinds of religious healers, um, and this is a, a, a kind of diversity that I can't even get into because it would be a whole whole other set of projects. But the big thing that you have is a large number of Korean traditional practitioners, Hanwi Hak practitioners, Hanbang practitioners, depending on the vocabulary, depending on how you want to identify them, people who are using some variety of Korean traditional medicine coming off of the major text, uh, Dongi Bogam from the early 17th century that I guess to people in uh, comparable fields would recognize as having some analogy to TCM, although being somewhat distinct, some analogy to Kampo in the Japanese context. And officially, uh, according to the way the Japanese set up the license system, most of these guys would have been, um, marginalized by this, you know, I'm talking here, let's say 20s and 30s and and into the wartime years, Um, marginalized, or at least the numbers are going down. But when you start talking to people who were there, this is where you have to be careful because like the the Japanese, the official numbers versus what sort of what's out there when you talk to people who are in the field, um, is that the Japanese basically outside of the cities, they licensed them, they checked on them, but I don't think they really, really, really heavily policed them in the sense that, and this will be the same case with the American occupation. 
they need them. So the, the average, okay, yeah, to your question, make it more comprehensible. The, the average Korean, meaning someone living in a village outside of a major city, uh, and this is much of um, certainly South Korea is, is rural at this time, um, is probably more likely going to someone like this, either a drug seller or a traditional practitioner. The access to biomedicine, I would argue, is much, much more highly confined to urban spaces like Seoul and a few other places. So that you have this... Um, bifurcation in terms of what's available and, and particularly you, yeah, you're, you're okay. Yeah. Make translate in terms of practice. You're much more likely to go to this Hanwe Hak guy anyway, in terms of maintaining normal health. In other words, it's not so much like an acute situation. It's just like, it's much more of an approach to a holistic approach, uh, taking care of yourself, staying healthy. Um, when you're giving birth at this point in time, uh, let's say thirties, forties in through the fifties, um, you're much more likely to have access, um, to a, a local midwife or a woman or someone who's there. And the same doctor who gave that quote, Dr. Zhang, uh, uh, Jemo Yang, Yang Jemo of, uh, Severance Hospital, uh, he, he, he says this later in an article. He's disturbed that well into the family planning campaigns in the sixties, he's finding Koreans who are giving birth on flower sacks on dirt floors, uh, and they're cutting the umbilical cord with uh, a farm implement rather than a, uh, very clean sanitized tool. Um, I, and I, I don't mean to like depict the sort of negative side of that experience. What I, I guess what I'm saying is Korean um, medicine well into the late latter third of the 20th century is far more holistic, basic, uh, keeping, you know, maintaining average health um, um, and, and access to kind of traditional practitioners. And the diversity is there, but if you can feel it in, in Dr. Yang's voice, and he's much more representative like of, of officialdom, he's, he's like totally confused and upset by it. And he kind of feels like you need to teach people, um, okay, that if you go to a drug seller, um, it means a certain thing. If you go to a Western biomedical doctor, it means a certain thing. This, this categorical confusion really, really upsets him. And he's kind of much more representative of the uh, biomedically oriented. Um, this is the South Korea that's going to start taking off. This is the South Korea that kind of gets celebrated in the media. Thank you so much, John. And for those sure. who aren't familiar with this terminology, I'll just mention that Hanwe Hak is one way of um, one way of translating that, or one way of sure. translating that in the book is is um, by Korean traditional medicine. Sure. But just to use a kind of, you know, albeit uh, very you know complicated, and and you're very careful about the uh, this terminology in the book, but. That's what Hanwe Hak means. And TCM, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, sure. often, um, is the way we uh, render the phrase traditional Chinese medicine. So, so as we move into the book, the first chapter actually looks really carefully at this context um, with the American military occupation of South Korea from 1945 to 1948, where you do have this very hybrid kind of South Korean medical community. This was a period, as you show here, where no single category of practice dominated, right? Sure. So at the same time, biomedicine is introduced by missionaries and by the Japanese colonial presence, but also traditional practices figure prominently. Of course, by the end of the story, biomedicine is going to emerge as one of the most critical of these many fragments. And you talk about this as a kind of fragmentary environment um, that's going to contribute to the construction of an independent South Korea. So sure. we're going to see over the course of this story that the interweaving of biomedicine and the state are going to be, uh, you know, it, this is going to happen. It's going to be really crucial for understanding what, what ultimately results. Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, most South Koreans in this context don't have access to a Western trained doctor. So they're relying on traditional practitioners. 
And this, this chapter follows the example of one of these practitioners, Mr. Yun Sang Hun. Am I mm-hmm. getting that sort of? Yes, I believe. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So, um, so you actually talk a little bit here about him and trace his career. Can you talk a little bit about him? Sort of what's his daily work like as a practitioner? What kinds of things does he do? And why is he so important um, for you in this part of your story? Sure. Um, and I'll, I can give you a context, too. It's, I mean, like where I even came across him. Um, uh, I actually, of course, uh, never met him because he's passed away. But his family was enormously helpful and cooperative uh, in helping me get access and explaining his story. Um, and I think it was 2006, I came across a story in a Korean newspaper, um, probably the Jungan Daily, which was uh, something along the lines of uh, five generations, six generations of a Korean family uh, practicing traditional medicine in, in some, you know, because it means different things at different times, some aspect. And I got in touch, and this turned out to be, I had to, oh, I have to look at the math here. I think it's his great-great-grandson who I was, I was actually talking to. It's either the great-great-grandson or the great-grandson, I'm sorry, I'd have to look at the family tree, um, who happens to be a modern, uh, and I'll explain what that means, and then that let me, lets me go back, a uh, Korean traditional physician who has a traditional Korean medical degree now and practices in Seoul, which means he knows Western biomedicine, he knows Korean traditional medicine, he has a modern, white, clean hospital-type looking clinic in Seoul, but he also maintains a family compound and traditional clinic outside of Taejeon in the countryside. And I got really interested in this kind of uh, very, to me, schizophrenic kind of approach. Um, you know, this, this is the same type of practice that looks very, very different at the two different sites. Um, so, yeah, what, what did, what did Young Sun Hoon, um, his uh, predecessor, do? Um, he's a perfect representation, and there are lots of guys who fit in this pattern, of someone who would have been trained, probably had the Japanese not intervened and colonized, um, either as a, you know, he would have at least tried to take the court exams and become a highly trained, highly literate, almost sinicized um, practitioner at the end of the, excuse me, at the beginning of the 20th century. Because of historical interventions, and these things happen, <laughs> um, he doesn't get to do this, but his family has long been doing this. So he's that generation of Korean practitioners who has the kind of self-authorized training from working uh, basically at the family clinic, um, reading of the classical Chinese texts, particularly reading the Dongyi Bogam. Um, he would have done things like um, still doing acupuncture and moxibustion, um, still prescribing herbal remedies. Um, they still, I think, prepare their own remedies at the site in Taejeon, although I suspect now it's probably regulated in a different way that it in a way differently than it would have been in the 1940s. Um, but it, where he's really interesting, where this moves forward in the story, is that he goes through multiple regimes of um, uh, policing and, and registration, which is why it's kind of interesting. Um, the photograph, unfortunately, did not make the book because we didn't get permission to use it. But I'll, uh, that's just simply um, uh, you know legal issues. Nothing. The family had no objections. But to explain it. What I have, uh, and it's kind of described in the opening paragraph of that chapter, is his American identification card given by the United States Army military government in Korea. And he's just kind of sitting there looking at the picture, and it says, this particular gentleman is licensed to practice Chinese herbal medicine in this particular village. And what it means is that the American military government doesn't necessarily respect his practice, but they also recognized, as the Japanese before them did, that 
this is not doing any harm. And also, let's face it, there aren't enough doctors. So kind of there's a very interesting ambivalence embedded in that license that shows um, that in the countryside where there's an absence of doctors, you are actually an essential part of the healthcare system um, for whatever that means. And so I guess I love tracing and bringing him out. And I've also gotten reactions to that particular chapter from people because he captures that transition in a less than 50-year period from the end of the Chosun dynasty through the hectic chaotic years of the Japanese colonial period, the beginnings of the American occupation and even into South Korea. Um, All in his life, this guy basically has, and obviously there are other Korean practitioners who have this, um, three very, very different ways of looking at the world. And he kind of went through this whirlwind, you know, late 19th through, through, through mid 20th century life that kind of nicely packs all that in there and allows me to bring it out narratively. Now, as we move into the second chapter, we actually look in detail at what's happening on the ground in the context of this U.S. military government in Korea. And um, how do you pronounce that acronym? Is it U.S.? Oh, you, I, I, yeah, I just, I, I have, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. How we, I mean, let's I, just decide. I, U.S. Ambassador. Sure. Oh, sure. Uh, I, I, I usually say USAMGIK, even if it's kind of unwieldy. USAMGIK. Okay. Because in Korea, people say... In Korean, people say mi jung, but I assume we'll go with the English. Yeah, yeah. let's go with the English. <laughs> yeah. the English. Okay, so the U.S. military government in Korea, or USAMGIK, um, yeah. is really the focus of Chapter 2. And you're setting this up as uh, also a bridge for our understanding what's going to come next in the emergence of South Korean public health policy later. But let's first start with this early story. USAMGIK, in their regime in South Korea, they focus heavily on disease prevention, and this is for a number of reasons. And Absolutely. one of them being, you know, they're really concerned with maintaining the health of their own forces, um, but for other reasons as well. Now, you describe in this chapter some really, really interesting and very striking large-scale interventions that they're using in, in an attempt to curb disease that involve spraying people with DDT. They involve lots of other kinds of things. Um, they also involve and, and focus, and you focus your attention in this chapter in a really interesting way on um, quarantine stations at the four port cities toward the southern end sure. of the Korean Peninsula. So can you talk a little bit about these large-scale interventions? What are they doing and, and how? what do we need to understand about this to understand what comes next? Sure. Um Actually, in a weird way, this is where it nicely intersects with um, people who work in Japanese studies in this period, in that um, any number of people, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, Tessamara Suzuki certainly has written about the repatriation. Chris Aldous has written about medicine and other people have as well. What, what this really is, is to remind ourselves that it's a large-scale occupation and that we're not just talking about the occupation of Korea, but we're talking about Japan as well. Um, you know, the more famous, the John Dower, 45 through 52. People forget that Korea is simultaneously being occupied. And that is Dower famously said, Korea got the occupation that was intended for Japan, the darker, harsher kind of Cold War, we're almost treating you like an enemy type of occupation. Um, so what USAMJK is really obsessed with in this period is uh, movement of bodies in every single direction. Um, I imagine this also well, a little bit later has uh, is affected also by the end of the uh, Chinese Civil War, but more particularly repatriation of Japanese um, back, uh, meaning soldiers, but also civilian personnel back to Japan and repatriation of Koreans um, uh 
back to Korea. And this, first of all, even politically, this is enormously controversial because this means, for example, that a child born in, um, uh, okay, uh, born in Kansai, born in Osaka or Kyoto in the 30s or 40s because their parents moved to Japan to get a factory job, um, that that child, even though ethnically, and this of course has huge implications for Japan and its ongoing issues with its ethnic Koreans, um, that that child basically is defined as Korean, has to go back to Korea, that family has to go back to Korea, and that what you're really kind of doing is not only policing the body, but then you're kind of mapping onto them whatever potential whether it's cholera, whether it's typhus, whether it's something else, you're mapping that disease kind of onto them almost um, preemptively as kind of a prophylactic gesture. Uh, and they're being put through these vast quarantine stations. Um, Got to remember now what Seoul, Masan, well, Incheon for Seoul, Masan. Uh, I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting that's the other okay. two. That's why people yeah. have to go and read the book. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but, but basically spraying them, um, taking their possession, I mean, ch- taking stock of their, I think it's also their, their material possessions and checking what they bring back with them. What this does in a weird way, and I've still never found out a smoking gun document, like why they restrict the amount of um, funds they're, and material they're allowed to bring back with them. But it takes people who basically had their whole lives in other places and makes them reconstruct in a country that basically has no economy, um, not a viable one, and is in kind of, you know, basically very unstable. And what this does is, of course, and this is where Japanese historians write about it, is it it encourages Koreans of all stripes that once they're repatriated, they start (laughs) trying to get out of the country again, Uh, and either going back to Japan or going back to somewhere else, whether it's China or Taiwan, where they can um, get some kind of sustenance, uh, subsistence living. And this is where you have um, this scheme to try to prevent disease and limit it matched with this political scheme that doesn't allow people to live the way they want to. Um, not Yeah, people, all kinds of resistance, all kinds of people moving around. And not surprisingly, you do get, um, fortunately, never never the big outbreak that they expect, but you do get minor, I should be careful about minor, nothing, but you do get outbreaks of typhus and cholera. And this is very much then where the American military, 46 and 47, can justify its biomedical interventions by saying, look, we've, we're allowing the Kanwi Hak guys to stay in the country, and that's great. But, but, but with something of this scale, we really have to, you know, not surprisingly, uh, from, from the perspective of the military government, we have to use biomedicine to handle this, to put this out, because we do not want disease spreading all throughout Asia, you know, spreading between Korea, Japan, and then obviously uh, with what's going on in China as well. I'm sure that kind of factored into the consideration of the people in Tokyo. And one of the really striking things that emerges not just from the chapter, but also from your talking about it just now, is the importance of your attention to the material, to the material culture of what's happening here. And that's something that's really striking in the book and also, I think, really important for us to keep in mind in the context of this kind of history. Um, so I, I really loved that part of what you're doing here and what you're doing, what you continue to do throughout the rest of the book in bringing our attention repeatedly back to the importance of the material context of what's happening here. Sure, sure. Thank you. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> totally my pleasure. So this continues to be the case when we look at the next chapter, and this is a chapter that you alluded to early on in your um, in, the, in our conversation. This is a chapter that looks at the period of the Korean War and its aftermath. And this is a period that Seoul was visited by Americans and other international um, individuals, bodies, who took it as a model for international development and sought to, within Seoul, in Seoul, reconstruct some of its biomedical sites. And we see here a case in which there's a new generation, as you describe here, as you put it here, of South Korean physicians and medical practitioners 
who have their careers really transformed by the infusion of funding and of assistance by these sources. But at the same time, this we have to you show us how that we have to be really careful in how we interpret and and situate this you know quote infusion of funding within the local context that really determined um, how and and whether certain kinds of resources were going to be available and were going to translate into this local context. So it's a really interesting. Um, context. It's a really interesting chapter, and as you described early on, this is one of the seeds of the project as a whole. So let's talk. About Absolutely. This. So one of the um, high, or one of the focal points, rather, of this chapter is a collaboration between Seoul National University Hospital and the University of Minnesota in the Minnesota Project, and this was from sure. 1954 to 1962. So sure. talk a little bit about that. Um, what's going on there, and what are for you the most significant aspects of that? collaboration and of that project for what's happening at this part of the story? Sure. Um, the Minnesota Project is still something that I'm obsessed with because it goes beyond medicine, and I won't uh, talk about those other parts, but just mention that um, Minnesota also involves engineering, public administration, um, other fields beyond medicine in Korea are transformed. And two, there's never been, to my mind, and also I've talked about this with some of the people at Seoul National University, um, a sufficient explanation for why the University of Minnesota in particular, but the short version of the narrative is that Harold Stassen, who is the um, American uh, head of uh, the Foreign Operations Administration, uh, predecessor agencies to USAID, um, had been the former, um, I think it's the governor of Minnesota. So I suspect, and other people suspect as well, that he got the opportunity from the from the federal government to sort of put this project somewhere. And not surprisingly, as a good politician, he kicked it back to his home state flagship university. Um, but I have no proof of that. Like, I've even had people say, like, um, well, Minnesota's cold, so is Korea. I mean, there are all kinds of weird apocryphal narratives out there. Okay, what's, what's more important about it? What's really interesting about it? Um, what's really interesting for the medical uh, project, um, uh, and this is particularly to Seoul Nash University, but it's happening at other Korean universities around the same time as well and other collaborations. So I kind of mentioned that briefly in the chapter. Um, large numbers of American personnel for the first, well, first of all, with the Korean War, of course, as a predecessor, but now for the civilian personnel in the post-war atmosphere, um, young Minnesota faculty, doctors, nurses, um, coming to Seoul, particularly between about 54 and 58, 59. Because um, the first, the idea is that the first half of the project will send Koreans to Minneapolis while Americans come to Seoul. And then the idea is that as the Koreans return slowly in the latter half of the 50s and into the early 60s, now the Americans have already kind of set the new tone, new system in place. And now the Koreans who experienced in America then teach the other Koreans on the ground in Korea, 58, 59, 60. Okay, this is now we get what the Americans are doing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, what does this mean? I mean, in terms of actual practice. Um, I'll talk about the cardiac program in a second, but it also uh, it affects ev everything in the hospital. Um, clerks, residents, and interns, that particular system kind of gets introduced uh, at least, uh, you know, uh, at least officially for the first time, um, doing clinical rounds, getting much more clinically oriented, breaking down at least all of the perceptions about Japanese medicine, which was supposedly hands-off, and this comes more from out of the German academic tradition. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, then more particularly then, uh, neurosurgery will also come out of this program, but then in particular, as I said, cardiac surgery. So, yeah, okay, what does this mean? 
Um, it, it, both good and bad. Let me try to try to explain. I mean, like, what, and I, I, no, bad is the wrong word. Um, good and interesting in a confusing way. <laughs> uh, it means it means that in a place that where the primary causes of disease at this point are things like leprosy, uh, things like tuberculosis, um, parasite infestation, that these are sort of the major developmental problems. Um, that you'll see across the Korean medical journals in the second half of the 50s, that in this place, an American surgical team uh, is beginning to introduce what was originally called, um, I'm trying to remember exactly Schimmert's language, I think it's a cardiac catheterization program. They, they, were, they were originally working with tuberculosis and diseased lungs. And what I try to show in the chapter is how that original mandate uh, from the U.S. resident who comes over um, certainly, be, not that it suddenly be, it's not like he's going off on his own and starting a cardiac program. The Koreans are enthused about this as well, but that it, it goes from being sort of a low end, kind of low expectation developmental program to something that really, from the demonstration surgeries that are performed in '58 to the Koreans themselves attempting open heart surgery in the early '60s, um, it goes to a high end, extremely ambitious program. That is, the Koreans are very much like, hey, like we've got the best people in the world here. Let's let's try to emulate what they're doing as well. But not surprisingly, um, and this is where I get in red, as you suggested, I get into the material culture, um, an operating theater in Seoul in 1962, 63, 64, even after the program is over, is just not the same as what is available in Minneapolis. And for all kinds of interesting reasons, uh, tacit knowledge, uh, material differences, um, uh, the, the, the surgeries work but it, the, the arc to getting to where the Koreans can actually replicate what's going on in Minneapolis takes any number of years. Um, and what I try to show is the, is the psychological and personal confusion, and then later subsequent growth, because it is ultimately a success story, experienced by the first Korean cardiac uh, slash thoracic surgery team, uh, Lee Chan Bum and Lee Young Byun of Seoul National University. Um, and, you know, so they, sort of they go through this arc of, look, we saw the surgery in Minneapolis, now we're trying in Seoul, most of our patients are dying, if not all of them. And then they go through this, and then eventually, by the late 60s, early 70s, begin to experience some measure of success. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot that's in, sort of embedded in there in their personal stories, and of course in their uh, medical stories. Thank you so much. And then there's this really poignant moment in that chapter, as you've described, where one of these doctors is writing to his mentor, Doctor Lilla Hay, um, yeah. and, and he says, "All of my patients are dying." And it's just, yeah, yeah, you know, the the emotional impact of these transformations, I think, is something that comes out in a really beautiful way in this chapter in a way that's really hard to do when you're simultaneously giving so much attention to the part of the story that's about you know the history of technology um, and the material culture of technology sure sure rationalization of medicine you know, the transformation of absolutely the, of a patient's body into an object and so i think um that's a really wonderful part of this chapter and i hope um, everyone will who is listening to this will read it because of that there is there are are people in this story. In a- yeah, yeah, and, and exactly. And as I mentioned earlier, that's ultimately like when I first thought, like, wait, I can actually make this dissertation fly. <laughs> exactly. So as we move from part one to part two, we move into a different context. Sure. In chapter four, um, which is the first chapter in part two, we see the South Korean state starting to take an init- a public health initiative, an initiative to create their own public health program. And this um, kind of echoes something that we touched on very briefly earlier in the conversation when we talked about the approach that the U.S. government in South Korea was taking to control a cholera outbreak, ultimately um, helping to shape the subsequent creation of this public sure. policy. And, and now we are getting into that public health policy now. 
So you describe the importance of the transformation of the arrival of a new state, um, the Park Chung-hee state in 19- Sure, sure. Prior to this, we had been talking about um, the most common health issues being, as you described earlier, problems of tuberculosis, tuberculosis, leprosy, parasites, chronic disease. After this, we see a transformation where the state mobilizes and also sort of strengthens itself and its own power around different kinds of public health initiatives. And these are initiatives surrounding conceiving the family, Mm -hmm. trying to control reproductive behavior. So there's an aggressive promotion here of a a wide range of birth control technologies. Can you talk um, a little bit about some of these technologies? So you mentioned um, in particular this one object that's just totally fascinating, the lipis loop. Yeah, the lips loop. Lips, lips loop. Okay, what's yeah. the what's going on there, um, and how? Uh, what do we basically need to understand about this particular object, this lips loop, in order um, to understand the kinds of transformations that you're describing here in this part of the chapter, in this part of the book? Absolutely sure. Um, I should say to begin with, I just give a shout out to someone, a colleague who works on an earlier period in this, that there are precedents um, where you have some uh, efforts in the Japanese period. I'm thinking of Sonia Kim at uh, SUNY Binghamton, who works on uh, family practice uh, in the 30s, I think, and 40s. And then even into the 50s, under the uh, first South Korean president, uh, Syngman Rhee, there are some civil society groups, um, but there's never the state completely signing on the way that they will later. So I just want to make sure that I, I remind myself that that transition is not like the state wakes up overnight and says, wow, the family. Um, but to, the, yeah, to your question exactly, the lips loop, and where this is where South Korea then connects to a much larger regional and international story. Um, and this is something, again, to give a shout out, this is something like Matt Connolly's fatal misconception story, but I'm trying to get um, where he tries to show international family planning in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. The lips loop is a piece of technology, and I don't know the exact the origin date, but it is considered to be, it's the Population Council, Rockefeller's um, real baby in terms of this is what we're going to give to, and I'm going to translate this crudely, uh, this is what we're going to give to third world women um, from the 50s onwards, um, once it's been, from their perspective, tested sufficiently, uh, to, this, this is going to be the major focus for us in terms of controlling the third world population problem, um, and, the, you know, as decolonization is going on. Um, it is a small, curvy piece of plastic that is supposed to be easily uh, um, inserted uh, it's supposed to be fairly reliable. It's supposed to stay there for a long period of time. Um, as they discover, there are, and, and, and this is where, of course, uh, particularly um, uh, feminist historians of science slash anthropologists of science slash science studies people have written wonderful stuff on how um, the lips loop was clearly, <laughs> clearly they didn't talk to too many of the women on the ground, at least initially. I mean, when they because re- they realized later that like, up to about 20, 25% of most estimates of women, uh, that, you know, their bodies just rejected it. Um, all kinds of bleedings, other symptoms, things like this. Um, but it, for, but for better or worse, at least initially, that's like sort of seen as the cutting edge piece of technology that is going to resolve, um, population issues. Uh, and I'll just restrict that for now to East Asia, meaning like places like Taiwan and South Korea. Um, th- this is, this is like the, 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 the horse to go with. And then it turns out not to be the case. They have to shift their focus in other directions. So you describe the shift um, of focus in the direction of the birth control pill, and you also talk about the importance of uh, uh, an effort to promote the use of condoms and vasectomy in this part of the Absolutely. So this Absolutely. It's not just a story about women. It's also a story 
about the um, urging of certain kinds of transformations of men's bodies as well. So it's a really sure. interesting story. Um, you talk also in this chapter about the importance of the kind of the apparatus that grows up around lip loop and the other technologies you describe sure. as a, a form as being rested on um, or resting on rather a form of demography that really transforms the individual to a kind of statistical abstraction. And so this is an important part of the story. Another, just as important to what's going on here as the technology is, is the media. And so you describe here the way that the family planning committees use media as being um, really, really important to what's going on, including this, um, not just television and print and radio, but also the on the ground placement of representatives into uh, rural villages. So can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that and the, the mother's clubs to the story? Yes, absolutely. And you know, you're right. It's, that's like one of the most central aspects and still one of the aspects that I don't fully understand if I were to expand this later uh, in the sense that the state, the South Korean state um, realizes that they can't, let's face it, they're not, not a, certainly at this point in time, uh, TVs in South Korea are not that common. And we're talking here early to mid sixties. Um, print media work, but you've got to make certain assumptions about literacy, uh, circulation. Um, that also is unreliable. So they, and this, by the way, there, are, there is a precedent to this, and this, again, is where I would invoke the work of someone like Sonia Kim. Um, but what they really do very thoroughly is create this program of Mother's Club, where they try, in theory, to get a woman in almost every village. And if you have any grasp, and even to me still, because I don't go into the rural countryside nearly as much as I should, what this means, it's, 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 it's almost insane in the sense that like you've got these tiny little mountain hamlets. And in theory, the South Korean state is ambitious enough at this point in time that by the late 60s and early 70s, they want to at least, let's say, be in touch with the local village headman's wife, because that often turns out to be the person that they're in touch with. And the the, the images of, the, of these people are absolutely fascinating, both the women who are Mother's Club's members, but also sort of the people who work for the uh, family planning organization who aren't necessarily the Mother's Club member, but also come to visit the villages sometimes in terms of distributing the birth control technology. There's a great magazine, and I only refer to it briefly in the book. It's called Katsungai uh, Bot, Happy Home. And it has these pictures of these young well, young, relatively young, uh, women in their early 30s, beautiful sort of coiffed hair, kind of looking very professional, carrying their family planning bags. And they're going into these villages um, where, you know, this is South Korea that still has Peace Corps workers. Well, they start bringing Peace Corps workers in in 66 and then that's where the early 80s. So you're talking about some pretty poor areas. Um, and it's just, just to give you that context, it's it's in a weird way, in some ways, the state knocking on the door of this village. Um for the only other time it's probably been to the village has been for military conscription or for something like taxation. So in a lot of these villages, I mean, that, that's a kind of a weird, interesting cultural contact in itself of the state meeting the village and the people recognizing, okay, this is, you know, this is our country, our state, but they're not quite sure always uh, what that means. And um, trying to understand that encounter, trying to understand how the technology gets mediated through that encounter is something that I'm you know, is, I'm trying to do in that chapter, but I recognize also that I still want to work with it more. To give you one other quick example, and this also is briefly, briefly referred to in the chapter, but, um, there is a South Korean movie from the late, oh, it's 2007 or 2008 called um, Charles Arabose, uh, Let's Live Well, which exactly follows one of these workers to try to capture that period, trying to show what it, what it was like for a young woman to be in a village. 
And it's just, it's, it's obviously um, meant to be lighthearted. It's a total comedy, but it captures kind of that weird fish out of water sense of someone, let's say with university train. Well, okay. To give you the sort of the, make the contrast rigid for you. Someone, let's say a young woman with a sociology degree training um, early, you know, late twenties, early thirties, totally different going to this rural village and again, trying to mediate and say, look, the state wants to use condoms. The state wants you to use um, uh, pills. And then maybe her counterpart is the local village woman. And that's the person she has to kind of deal with in terms of translating this to the village. It's that state meets well, it meets its own people, but it's it's very much in a weird way about turning Koreans into modern South Koreans. It is it is almost I wouldn't use the word of you know the vocabulary of like an internal colonization, but it is a Seoul meets the rest of Korea, and those are very very different types of Koreas. Um, and what I'm ca- I'm trying to capture anyway is kind of the weirdness of that that that, that there's compliance, but that there's also lots of kinds of um, people who are not necessarily on board with the program, and this will also translate into some of the other large state directed programs at the same time. Great. Thank you so much, John. So sure. You mentioned also, and I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about this because we have to get to poop in a bag. Sure. Okay. <laughs> and, and okay. Surgery. Great. Great. And, um, <laughs> you, you must have been expecting that. But, um, but I um, just... Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and if you ask a Korean of that generation, anyone who went to school in the 80s, if you ask them, did you ever give your teacher a sample in a bag, they'll start laughing. That's right. Poop in a bag. So we, yep. we're going to get to that. You, 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 were, you were allowed and encouraged to give it to your teacher. <laughs> That's right. An apple for the teacher. But <laughs> exactly. I, so before I start asking... Asking you questions about poop in a bag, I just want to mention that uh, one of the really important points that comes out in this chapter that, um, that I just want listeners to be aware of is that you're arguing here um, something that's really interesting and that's really a, a useful and important counterpoint to the way this kind of phenomenon is often treated in the historiography of um, colonial and post-colonial medicine, which is that you're arguing here these new forms of bodily intervention, right? The condoms, vasectomy, lips loop, birth control pill, they're actually sure. perceived less as a form of interference than as a means of, as you put it, exerting control over oneself and one's family. So I think that's a really just important point, and it really acts as a counterpoint to the kind of dominant sort of... Oh, yeah. It's Precisely. That, yeah. That's the verb. That's the adjective I would be trying to go against. And, and occasionally people will say that to me, like, aren't you doing that? And I'm like, well, I'm certainly trying not to. Right. Exactly. And so, so I just want to also direct listeners to that part of chapter four. It's really, I think, very important um, and very helpful. So, mm-hmm. so poop in a bag. Okay. Okay. So as we move to chapter five, Chapter 5 looks at the national anti-parasite campaigns. This is a fascinating chapter for all kinds of reasons. Okay. Um, but uh, So I'll, I'll just you know, ask you to talk about some specific um, examples from this chapter, and we'll talk a little bit about what's going on here. So there are national anti-parasite campaigns. By 1969, sure. um, and this is what I refer to jocularly as poop in a bag, these, anti- <laughs> these anti-parasite campaigns required taking samples from school children twice per year. Um, which meant thousands of children bringing stool samples to school and, you know, developing an infrastructure to analyze those samples. And you talk about the importance here of this for the, um, in the context of of the uh, nation uh, rebuilding itself and extending. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about this? What's going on in these, sort of, why do we need to know about poop in a bag and how is this significant for the state project at this point? Sure. Um, I guess two things. One, it's to remind ourselves that 
education, and uh, this is already, again, to give another shout-out, um, uh, Michael Seth's uh, Kyo Yok Yol, Education Fever, is the big book on this. To remind ourselves that one of the big things that South Korea prides itself on and probably can pride itself on is that education was restored almost immediately uh, to, um, uh, to children, uh, even during the American occupation period, and that this was extended well beyond the limited education that the Japanese gave during the colonial period. So that's one, the importance of the schools and then what you can do with the schools in terms of nation building. Two, and it's there in the background, um, but it's in the chapter and I want to emphasize it, is the Vietnam context and the context of larger anti-communism. That is, I'm tr- I was trying hard not to do too much of the analogy with um, similar campaigns for cleanliness going to, let's say, you know, obviously things like, like China and, ta- you know, obviously Ruthwood Gossip work on hygienic modernity. But nonetheless, as I got interested in the Korean effort in Vietnam and what Koreans think developmentally in their contacts with Korean villagers, and I think this appears in the latter half of the chapter, I began to realize that, hey, wait a minute, like some of the same Korean doctors who are running the domestic campaign are running the international campaign. So just make that point out there that it's both about cleansing the nation, but it's also about cleansing the nation and its contact with its neighbors, one of which is a very suspiciously dirty, potentially communist neighbor. Um, yeah, what, why is it really important? What, is it, what does it mean? I mean, okay, so school children have to give their teacher a sample. Let's well, remind ourselves of how recent South Korea's transformation is. I mean, we forget with K-pop and Hollywood, the, the K-wave, that Korea, as recently as the first national surveys that come out of this campaign, so we're talking the early 70s here, uh, something like 55, 60% of people have parasites. Um, this is to deal with, you know, it's a heavily agricultural nation that doesn't have a lot of chemical fertilizer. And this definitely goes back to the split with North Korea because all the industry was in the North. Um, people tend to eat fruits and vegetables that tend to have been fertilized with natural sources of fertilizer. This tends to result in a cycle of parasites. So developmentally, this campaign is about Korea refurbishing its image both domestically and internationally as a country that is clean, sanitary, doesn't do these things. And then the schools being really important, this is the one way you can capture the younger generation. And again, um, I don't spend a lot of time doing popular culture, but I've been told by people that if you watch the film The Classic, um, which is a early 2000s Korean film, that there's a scene where the young girl receives anti-worm pills. And I had students say to me after I talked about the anti-parasite campaign in class, like, oh, that's why she's getting the pills. And I was like, that must be it. Like, every Korean would know, just as the family planning campaigns were very famous, almost every Korean between 69 and the late 80s, early 90s, would know from stories about going to school, giving the bag to the teacher. Um, If you're embarrassed, you try to avoid school, and the truant officer comes to your home. Um, I've heard stories, I mean, this is all the fun, apocryphal stuff. I've heard stories about people donating their pet sample. Um, I, I had a friend tell me that she was too embarrassed, and she made one out of clay, and she gave it. So, I mean... Then there's the joke thing, too, where the public health people are finding all these parasites that they know are not human being parasites, and they realize that they're getting pet samples as well, and they try to, you know, try to count, account for it. They know that the sample is not pure, so to speak. But, I mean, it's just this fascinating process of the state literally peering into the bodies of basically an entire cohort of two or three generations and basically trying to cleanse out their colons and cleanse out their interiors. And they do this quite successfully um, uh, to the point where by – I, well, no, even, even more so than family planning, this is widely regarded, certainly in South Korean public health circles, as a massive success because they get it down to where, you know, parasites are now a very, very uncommon thing in South Korea, with the exception of perhaps a extreme rural area. So if you ever write a novel about this stuff, you have to include a scene of, <laughs> of the, actually, not 
poop in a bag, but the rat elimination campaign. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, right, right, there's right. There's this wonderful, a very brief um, but very wonderful account in this part of the book of antecedents to these campaigns. This wasn't, of course, the first kind of um, uh, elimination no, campaign. No, exactly. No pun exactly. intended. Um, this was, you know, there were antecedents, and one of the antecedents involved um, eliminating rats, um, which um, I'll just say for listeners, um, in order to prove as a child that you had eliminated these rats, it was encouraged to bring rat tails to your uh, school, to whoever was collecting them. Okay, John, so we're back. So we were, um, I just want to, I'll conclude just to say with the rat tails. Yes. <laughs> there's this great scene where you describe kids creating fake rat tails out of various exactly. substances. Exactly. Shoelaces, shoelaces, leather, uh, other materials. Yeah. I yeah. just love that. And if you ever write a novel about this, um, please include that scene because that's a great Um, I will try to do that. And if I can just hint, that's, I'll be honest with you, um, scholars of China, scholars of East Asia in general who know larger things about um, anti-pest campaigns in general, that's where I recognize that there's a lot more there to be tapped into with Korea as being connected to a larger East Asian culture of anti-pest things, whether it's China or whether it's somewhere else in the region. Uh, the material culture of anti-pest campaigns and fake rat tails and poop exactly. and bag, I just love it. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that chapter, believe me, I had fun writing it and people, generally speaking, like hearing about it, although not, I've discovered quite uh, reasonable. When I gave this uh, at NUS a couple years ago, I gave it as uh, the last paper before lunch. That was a problem. <laughs> So speaking of things that people like hearing about, I know you've gotten a lot of attention for this um, last body chapter of the book. So let's turn to that. Um, sure, sure. Maybe not for the, you know, for an entire hour, which I'm sure we could talk. No, sure. sure. For. So this is a chapter um, and I'll just read the title, Reconstructing the Face. And so listeners can kind of guess why people have been really interested in this chapter in particular. Asian blepharoplasty, professional expertise, and the development of a plastic surgery market, 1954 to the present. So this really looks at um, the emergence of and the historical context of the present-day market for aesthetic and plastic surgery. Exactly. Now, the story, um, there, it's a very detailed story that's actually very, very helpful in its detail that traces a couple of major doctors who develop and pioneer what's actually not a new kind of a thing, but perhaps frame it in a new way and, and develop new kinds of technologies to focus on transformations of the eye area. So you mentioned one doctor, Dr. Ralph Millard. Is that, am I pronouncing that correct? Uh, I'm not sure whether it's Millard or Millard, but sure. Millard. Okay. Millard yeah. or Millard, um, yeah. who's a plastic surgery for the U.S., plastic surgeon rather for the U.S. Marine Corps. And he starts, he stays in South Korea to do uh, reconstructive surgery. He begins focusing on the eye area, and he's actually asked by people to transform their eyes. So one Korean translator working with U.S. forces you described here is asking him to be to make this person into a round eye. Yes, uh, and which is kind of disturbing in its own way. It is disturbing, and I think the chapter does a really excellent job of um, addressing the potential. Should I pause this? Uh, no, I think it, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, we, we can go ahead. He's, okay. he's getting it. Okay, I think so that's his coworker. Sorry. Dong, no problem. So we'll just treat that as a particularly um, a, a marker of the interest inherently in this chapter. So ding dong, this is a really interesting chapter. There we go. Uh, ding dong, Dr. Ralph Miller, Millard. Miller, yes. Millard. Um, so using this example, I think, um, as I was saying, you do a really good job here of 
both addressing the potential issues of and the historical issues of ethnicity and sort of ethnic identity that are uh, bound up in this process of um, creating this uh, aesthetic and um, other kind of transformation of the face while not making the story just about that, which would be uh, easy to do, right? Right, So Trace um, Millard and another Dr. Rusk into the uh, sort of early stages of what happens to be a development of blepharoplasty, so eyelid surgery. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Now, this practice, as you describe it here in this chapter, isn't new. um, Right, not at all. So, and this seems to be a really important part of the historiographical approach that you're taking here. So this is also an important lesson for those of us who do look at the history of medicine and technology. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of how, um, how new was this? What's the larger context and why and how is that important for understanding the larger arguments that you want to make um, with this chapter of the book in the context of the larger arguments that the book is making? Okay. Um, first of all, to the question of uh, novelty or newness. Um, you start – actually, it's the, the weird and interesting thing, and I did not know this until I got into this chapter, that there's a huge literature just on – like you can find entire surgical textbooks now just on blepharoplasty specific to Asians. Um, so actually that's the historiography where I was coming out of rather than let's say uh, Asian studies or Japanese studies. But it becomes immediately obvious that this particular surgery has a lengthy history in Japan. Um, uh, and then depending on which, you know, where you want to, what you want to posit as your uh, origins criteria, that at least it goes back to late Meiji. Um, and, the, the surgery, uh, the sankopal in Korean, the double eyelid surgery, Asian blepharoplasty in English, um, has this history throughout the first half of the 20th century in particular, um, heavily with the majority of the abstracts, publications. If you start looking at it and you start looking at the literature, particularly through um, the, the medical literature on eye surgery in, in general, um, it becomes obvious that the double eyelid surgery the song couple, and of course there are variations here. I mean, we have to be, I'm, I'm using it as kind of a collective term here, um, but that, that that it seems to derive particular in East Asia from the Japanese Meiji surgical context goes into Shawa, goes into uh, goes into Taisho and Shawa, and uh, that is through the 20s and 30s, uh, and that Japan seems to be the major driver here. And I, I don't, when I say that, I don't want to replicate that this is just another Korean story of Koreans picking something else up from somewhere else in East Asia. Nonetheless, it struck me as interesting and fascinating that this is probably a case, at least, where this surgery was probably first done by the Japanese before Koreans uh, Koreanized it in their own particular way uh, in the modern eye clinics of Seoul. But the other layer to that, and this fits nicely in why I tried to use this chapter to kind of recapture and in many ways recapitulate large sections of the book is that, of course, it deals not only with the Japanese, but with the large uh, influence and significant impact and influence of the American military. Um, Millard was not someone, um, I mean, I did not discover him. Lots of other people have written about him. And he deserves his own book uh, by somebody, a major biography on his own, not only for his weird and interesting work on Korean eye surgery, which I'll get back to in a moment. But two, he does lots of noses in the Florida context. Uh, someone came up to me at a conference and said to me that there was a Millard who was doing basically noses in the Miami area. Um, not another, and, and sure enough, we checked it. It's the same guy. Oh, wow. he, go, he goes back to an America and he does lots of Jewish women's noses in my, I'm sorry, but it's like another, he takes another kind of ethnic stereotype and he does this for a long time. He's very successful at the University of Miami. He just passed away a year or two ago. 
Um, okay, so the, but the, the more serious thing, and, the, and let's try to store this as a context. So if you've got the Japanese context, you've got the American military context, and where the chapter tries to go, which is trying to look at how, and not just looking at the face, but how and why the Korean obsession here will develop, um, and an opportunity develops, both because of the way the health insurance system is set up and because of the way that Korean doctors will professionalize. But before I get to that, um, just to point out that... Um, where was I going to go with this? Oh, yeah. Something I didn't mention, and it's only hinted at in the chapter, is that it also raises all kinds of fascinating bioethical questions. Um, Millard does do that translator. We get all of those accounts through Millard's words, through Millard's account. But even more than that, and I've realized, I've talked to other people about this, and I don't recall saying too much about it in the chapter, he does a lot of these eye surgeries on Korean women who are with the military camps. He doesn't make it clear, but it, if you read between the lines, and again, this is just a supposition, but he calls them the Candlelight Club girls. These are basically Korean prostitutes. He's 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 definitely doing surgery. Okay, definitely. He's probably doing surgery on Koreans who are marginalized U.S. camp followers in those cases. And then we have to like read between his the lines of his accounts when he says they want to be made round eyes and so forth, or they want to look like you know basically white people. Um, and, and recognize that he's definitely doing things that are kind of bioethically murky. I guess, I guess the other last thing I want to say to that, um, before I forget, is I also was really strongly, besides trying to recapitulate the Japan and American influence and Koreanization narrative, is the idea, and lots of people are obsessed with this, but just the idea that trying to push back against the idea that when Koreans have this eye surgery, that they're simply trying to imitate, uh, and this is what Millard says. He says, I'm transforming my patients from Oriental to Occidental. That is exactly what he claims. And I'm trying to break down that claim. Um, and I can't remember, but this gives me an opportunity. Um, I think it is in the chapter. He says that the translator, and this is kind of a wonderful, weird, disturbing mid-1950s story. He says, the translator is happy with the surgery I've done. Now that I've got the picture, um, he look he's mistaken for Spanish or Italian. And he's going to be go to the United States to study for the ministry. He's a good Christian. So you get not only the whitening of his face, but the whitening of his identity. Um, and that fits in with larger narratives that are out there. People who write about Korean adoption, post-Korean war. This is part of the adoption story. Um, if uh, the, Holt, the famous Holt Family Adoption Agency, very Christian, very much about create place and create children with white families in the States. Uh, and, uh, and I'm obviously trying to push against that, trying to show that Koreans have a much more subtle take on what's going on with the eye surgery, that yes, those economic motives are there, but it's much more complicated and rooted in a longer um, East Asian tradition. And I guess, yeah, I guess the other thing, with Millard, there's just so much more to be done if someone wants to write uh, his biography. Um, he has a society. It's out there. It's funny. They have this little, um, now that he's passed away, he's got a whole bunch of followers that have a lot of his publications and stuff online. And then I guess to give the guy credit in a weird way, he is known in, in a different context, quite seriously as being someone who perfected the cleft palate surgery. So in addition to doing noses and eyes, he did to his credit, um, help lots of children in the developing world, particularly in Korea, um, not have a cleft palate problem. Someone really needs to write a novel about your book. <laughs> so I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, okay. Put yeah. That out there because there's so many really complex and really fascinating stories here. And yeah, so, if I, you know, sorry. if I can interject really quickly, no, yeah. one more thing. I'll just explain that picture of the Korean translator, the before and after picture of that one guy who goes from being the dissatisfied Korean translator for the U.S. military, who's now quote unquote a round eye satisfied Christian going to study for the missionary. That would have been the cover of the book. 
we wanted it to be the cover of the book. We could not get permission to use it again um, because it's in an article published by Millard, wonderfully titled Oriental Peregrinations. Um, the Millard family was very hard to get in touch with. Uh, the journal was like, we don't know, like, well, in other words, it's a p- paper published, I think, 55 or 56. No one on the journal will sign off for it. So Stanford asked me to drop it. But I mean, that's like the one picture I'd love to like sort of have as the the alternate fantasy cover of the book had it had it been able to happen. Second edition, paperback. <laughs> there, there we go. There's still hope. <laughs> yes, yes. So, John, before we um, before we move to our conclusion here, um, sure. I just because of time, I won't ask you to talk um, very much about this, but I just also want to mention that in that chapter, not only do you talk about this deep historiography of blepharoplasty and all of these really interesting issues that you've talked, you've discussed in our conversation that surround that, but you sure. also talk about insurance reform and healthcare um, in yes. this period. You talk about the emergence of private clinics being an yes. important part of the story, and then ultimately how all of these factors resolve into the contemporary, the, the right now, plastic surgery environment in South Korea today. So I'll just gesture at that for listeners. Um, There's a lot more happening in this chapter, and it's a fascinating story, and and I hope people have a chance to get the book and, and read that story. Sure. So as we move to the close of the book, there's also a conclusion. Um, you talk in the conclusion. It's a wonderful summary and pushing forward of what we've talked about in the ch- in the context of the book. And you also, and this is my last question for you before our conclusion, you mm-hmm. talk about the ways that TKM, um, traditional Korean medicine, sort of capital T, capital T, K, capital M, is really radically reconfigured um, in or after, rather, 1987. So you bring this story further into the future um, mm-hmm. than, you know, from where we were for most of the narrative. Can you talk a little bit about that briefly, sort of in what ways since um, from the close of the major part of the story through the conclusion, um, how, what are some of the most important ways that TKM has been radically reconfigured for you in the context of um, what we understand about what's happening in the book? Sure. Um, the, right. In the conclusion, this was a nice way of uh, an opportunity to at least recognize and hand wave at the fact that there is now a significant portion of Korean medicine, um, perhaps even more so than earlier. Well, okay, not more so, but in a different way uh, that relies on TKM. Uh, I'm traditional Korean medicine, but I'm now using this to mean the more bioscientifically slash modern training. You study both Western medicine and traditional Korean medicine uh, at four-year medical colleges. You get all the clinical experience. Um, These are programs that have reemerged since the 60s and 70s. Um, Okay, yeah, where and how is it different? And by the way, I should be clear here. There are people who will clearly disagree with me on this, who work on this uh, much more than I do. Um, and, And I mentioned, I guess, the best kind of most subtle take on this is Kim Jong Young, who's at Kyung University, um, tries to look at exactly what does it mean to do Korean traditional medicine in a society that is largely globalized and more oriented towards biomedicine now. And he, uh, he does a nice kind of anthropological take on it. Um, okay, yeah, what's changed? Um, the guys that I mentioned in chapter one, which nicely uh, you started with, uh, Byung Sun Hoon, have, they're basically, I mean, they're, they're marginalized. They're basically um, not pushed out of the picture, but you can no longer train like that. Um, there's about a 15 to 20 year period uh, between about 45, I'd say in the mid 60s. And I, I have to be honest, I haven't looked deeply into this, so I'm using this as kind of a hand wave periodization. But where, where these, inst- no, but where these institutions um, 
don't really exist. How do we have guys have to figure out what they're going to do, um, how they're going to kind of compete in a society that, as we've seen for much of this book, is really on board now with biomedicine and embracing it, and clearly the state is. Um, what they do, of course, and the other practitioners in other countries, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, similar strategies I would guess pop up in places like Vietnam and China. They decide that they're going to compete on equal terms with biomedicine by doing um, my vocabulary, not theirs, but by essentially scientizing their practice. They now take their herbal remedies and they try to understand at the chemical level what's going on. They actually do study four years of whatever, Western anatomy, physiology, uh, all the things you would get in a Western medical curriculum. They do their own training as well. And then they essentially go out on the marketplace. And by the 60s and 70s, these schools are popping up. There's a handful of them, but they're getting recognized. And they can go out on the market as doctors and say, look, uh, we're better. We know both. Um, We can treat you both ways. And as Korea starts to come back economically, particularly in the 80s, starts to get more wealthy, um, you know, sort of a sense of pride restores uh, to the country, a little bit of nationalism coming in there. Um, These guys become much more financially viable, much more powerful to the point where the gentleman that I did interview, uh, Byung-sun Hoon's, again, I think it's the great-grandson, is able to have a wonderful white gleaming clinic in Seoul that is clearly... um, And if you ask him the question, she'll throw in lots of English terminology and sort of, you know, bioscientific terms. He'll have that space. And yet he can take you to his clinic outside of Taejeon in the countryside where he did as he did to me. If I can tell this story, he basically did an exercise of trust where he made me drink something that he had prepared when I came down that when I went down there in the summer of 2006. I to this day do not know what it was. Um, but I, but I try kit and apparently I passed the test because he gave me a three or four hour interview and he let me look at the family materials. But no, what he, what he has down there is he has a clinic where he allows the patients to live on site for short periods of time and they do the whole, uh, health food regime, uh, clean living. It's very beautiful out in the middle of nowhere, basically. Um, it was the first time in first place also, to be honest, in my, um, cause at that point I was a level five student in Korean. Um, once I got off the train uh, in Taejeon and switched to the local train and the taxi and then getting to the family, which was another 45 minutes, I had absolutely no use of English. There was no one to speak to in English. And it was really a useful exercise just getting to the clinic. And he kind of later said to me, yeah, I was kind of seeing whether you could get here or not. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it was really, it's from my perspective, that is, it's really not that far out there, I guess, from a Korean's perspective, but from my perspective as someone who spent most of his time in Seoul, that was my first, like, really getting out to the mountains and fields kind of thing. Um, the, the fact that you can have that contrast, those two clinics run by this, this similar type of doctor, Who's he, he doesn't really appear in the chapter, but I'm using him now rhetorically. Juxtapose him back several generations to his relative. Um, very, very different types of practice, even if they figure in the national imaginary in actually in somewhat similar ways. Perfect. John, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. It's a fascinating book. It's full of great, great, great stories and lots of arguments, and many of them we just didn't have a chance to talk about. Sure, sure. Hours is not a lot of time. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention, and perhaps especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Um. I think uh, nothing in terms of the content that's there, but I just want to mention one other thing, just that it's kind of something that's implicit in the book, and I didn't really talk about it. It's something I'd like to work on later, head to head. Um, the history of the autopsy itself in oh, Korea yes, is absolutely yes. fascinating. I think I have like one line in there in the conclusion, and I'll mention the reason for it. It's that in a culture that's heavily militarized, 
from 61 through 87, and in particular from 80 through 87, uh, with a military government, with the um, work done by the Reconciliation uh, Committee under former President No Moon Hyun, you get all these kinds of cases popping up now where you find Koreans dying from suspicious bumps on the head um, in the 70s and 80s. And I, I seriously want to write this separate piece, which obviously indicates that not Koreans are not just getting bumped on the head in the night, but that clearly in some level the autopsy in a heavily militarized culture during this time, in an anti-communist culture, uh, for lack of a better vocabulary, gets compromised or gets reshaped in particular ways where you can have people die from bumps on the head without necessarily pushing any further into why they might have actually have died. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, a this, fascinating part. Yeah, it's like a sub-story that I was never able to get into and I couldn't figure out how to stick it into the book. So speaking of that, what's next? Yes. Now that the book is out, congratulations on the book. Um, Thank you. Project? Are you looking forward to what? What's op- occupying you right now? Is it this autopsy project, or is it something? Compl- um, or- I'll say if I can say two things really quickly. Yes. Then, yeah, sure. A short, a short thing, which is actually implicit in one of the chapters in chapter four, but I recently got asked to pull it into a full chapter for an edited volume. The male masculinity section of family planning—that's in chapter four—and mm-hmm. the emphasis on the vasectomy. Um, what I'm probably going to do is write, if I can give a shout out to, uh, I think the editors are, let's see, this is Angela Lung and Francesca Bray, and I believe Howard Chang, are putting together an edited volume, uh, I believe, on gender in general. So, But I'll be doing one of the chapters that will be particularly on masculinity, um, maleness in South Korea, and in particular, trying to write about how you, okay, really quickly version of the story. Uh the Home Reserve Army in Korea in the late 60s, once you get in, they get very active in this vasectomy surgery because they figure out, just like the schools, we've got almost every male here. So what they do is they give you a decommissioning lecture where you are told, hey, uh, if you are willing to have this surgery, um, we'll give you no further reserve duty. You don't have to report back to the military anymore. You get a better apartment. If you've already had children, you get access to better schools, better opportunities. And I've had lots of Korean guys talk to me about this apocryphally. So I'm trying to answer the question in that chapter of how do you emphasize maleness and masculinity in a very virile, masculine military culture where you're essentially telling guys the vasectomies are cool. Right. And, and, and I've had people – oh, the, the, the apocryphal stuff, which I haven't found yet, but I've had people describe them to me. Apparently, Kim Ok-ju at Seoul National told me there used to be a TV ad where they would show the guy, the soldier, going in for the surgery, and he would come out smoking a cigarette, both suggesting his right. continuing virility, but also that he had, the idea that he had just had sex. Right. And then the one thing that I do have is a wonderful picture of a watermelon, and the watermelon has seeds, and then it doesn't have seeds. Ah, <laughs> and that was given to me by a Korean public health expert. And it's just, it's, I, I show it to my students sometimes. And then all, everyone in the class, all the guys start going, Oh, about, it's just, that, so I'm going to write a chapter on that. That's that. Uh, you can probably tell I'm way too enthusiastic about that. No, that sounds great. <laughs> so what's the other project you were? Sure. The other project, and uh, this is not myself alone. If I can just really quickly plug is, um, it's an edited volume project between myself, Hiromi Mizuno at Minnesota, uh, Aaron Moore at Arizona State, that is still at this point loosely called Engineering Asia. Uh, and we're having the first meeting in Singapore in December of this year, and then we're talking to publishers. But in essence, it's an attempt to take, and this is where I fit in nicely with the Korean side of it, the entire baggage of Japanese empire uh, and its associated packages of medical work, construction work, um, infrastructure work, uh, colonial modernity in general. And trying to recognize that 45 does not at all represent an endpoint, 
that many of these wonderful Japanese, uh, you know, sort of use the stark kind of artificial contrast, bad colonial guys in the 30s and 40s uh, become nice, clean, gleaming Japanese developmental people in the 50s and 60s. So we're going to look at collectively with about six or seven other people, um, roughly 45 to about 65 or 70, and to translate it into a kind of um, – crude fashion, we're looking at, okay, the Southeast Asian co-prosperity fear stops in 45, but no, it doesn't. And actually, if you look at bridge building, electrification, uh, road building in much of Southeast Asia up through the Vietnam War, it's some of the same people all over again. And that, I hope, fits nicely coming off my book with trying to look at these same narratives of how Koreans also reinvent themselves as we're working for the Japanese, but no, we weren't. We're, We're now working for the Americans, and now we're South Koreans. Yeah, that's fabulous. John, best of luck on both of those projects, actually. And I will very much look forward to reading both of those. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time. It's really been a pleasure. And and thank you again for all the way from Singapore and Saturday morning. Um, (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And uh, with the exception of a little bit of uh, infrastructure work that went on here in the background, hopefully things have all come through clearly. That's okay. (laughs) We've hopefully the air conditioning um, colleagues learned a little bit about South Korean biomedicine in the process. Uh, If if, if they were listening, hopefully so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, John. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.